Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. We'll have it up on the screen, but once again, that's Mark 9, 14, 29, if you want to turn to the, your own Bible. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and, scri- and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are, are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And has, been, and has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered his house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The word of the Lord. We started as a church over 10 years ago. One of our early commitments was we were going to support not only local missions, but also missions around the world. One of our very first missionaries were the Furs, uh, who were called to France. And you may think, France? That sounds like a pretty cushy missionary gig. But if you've tried to have Christianity and the gospel in Western Europe lately, you'll know that it is definitely a post-Christian environment. And so they went and were part of a church planting team and planted a new church, an evangelical church that reaches out with the gospel in the suburbs of Paris. And, um, you know, they don't get around very often, but we are really privileged to have Chris and Kirsten here this morning with us, and we've been privileged to support them consistently now for this decade. And so they're going to come and share a little bit about what they're doing and what God's called them to in this next season of their life. Um, but also, and Chris is going to bring us a word, a message from God's Word this morning as well. You guys can make your way up here. But we also just want to bless them. If you have questions after the service for them, they're going to be hanging out around the coffee in here. And so if you have interest in what they're doing, please come and stay and, and visit with them afterward. But we welcome and bless you guys. Well, it is an honor and a privilege for us to be with you here again. I was discussing with Tim a little bit earlier about when was the last time we were here at Living Hope. And I think it's been six years 
So we saw Tim at General Assembly three years ago, but we haven't been here in Haymarket with you for six years. So back then you guys were in the other facility, so it's fantastic to see how God has blessed this church, how you've grown, uh, just to be here with you and to see your faces this Sunday morning. So thank you for having us. Uh, Chris and Kirsten, we have three children, Maren, Reese, and Carlson. Maren is 11, Reese is 8, and Carlson is 5. So we've actually added a kid since we've seen you last. Uh, but as That'll Tim was saying, one. yes, that, I think that is the last one. Uh, as Tim was saying, uh, we have been in France for the last nine years working as church planters in the Brie region outside of Paris. So if you're familiar with Brie cheese, this is where it comes from. And we've been working in a, uh, as Tim said again, a very postmodern, post-Christian environment. But we have also been able to see in those nine years, God bless the efforts that we had working with a French church planting team to see a church planted, uh, Église de la Brie, the Church of Brie. And in that time, we saw it begun in a, uh, a living room with just us and our French partners and a few of their friends and grow into a church of about 175 to 180 people. So the Lord has greatly blessed it. Yes, give the Lord a hand. It, it's been amazing. So the majority of those people were not Christians, or if they were Christians at all, they had gone to a Catholic church perhaps when they were children. So we've seen the Lord bring people to faith who had really no knowledge of him before. You may be thinking, well, it's France, right? It's a Christian country. And we've always said that France is a country that is full of churches that are empty of people. Most people have very little understanding of the gospel. In fact, 80% of French people have never laid eyes on a Bible. And that's not just true in France. That's true in most of Western Europe. Christianity has left the building, so to speak. So we have been thrilled to, and privileged to be a part of what God is doing to see renewal happen in Europe. So I'm going to let Kirsten share a bit of a story from our time in France and uh, talk about a particular person that we saw God's working in their heart. So when we first moved to France, um, we needed to make a life. We were learning French, and um, we needed to... One, one of the um, main focuses of who we wanted to be as a church was to live fully into the communities where we were and just to be the light of Christ and live amongst those in our communities. So we said, well, what are our natural interests? Let's start taking part in them with French people. So we like vegetables, and so we joined a vegetable co-op. And one Saturday, they had a big get-together to dig up potatoes to help the farmers. So we went out, and uh, we were speaking French to our kids, who were small at the time, and um, so a woman overheard us, and she came over and said, oh, I love English. I actually teach English at the local elementary school. And so in that moment, a beautiful friendship was born with a woman named Catherine. And... Um, for the next two years, we just shared in life with Catherine, and we would sometimes invite her to church, and at that time, our church was very much in this uh, same setting. We met in the town hall, and we would tear down and set up, tear down and set up, so I love being here. It's a good memory. We've been where you are. Yes. We know what this is like. <clears throat> so, um, so anyway, Catherine said no for almost two years, and then one time she said, yeah, we'll, we'll come this Sunday. So she came with her three daughters, but not her husband, because he was a staunch atheist and would have nothing to do with it. So she came with her three daughters, and they just came in contact with the community of Christ. 
And they just felt so welcomed and loved, and they enjoyed it, and they just never stopped coming. And that was, goodness, seven years ago, I think. And in that time, Catherine has passionately fallen in love with Jesus. She loves serving in anything she can at the church. Two of her teenage girls have been baptized, and her third daughter has asked to be baptized this year. And this is a huge praise, because her husband would come around for barbecues and stuff like that. But he still wanted nothing to do with, with getting to know Christ. And we just heard from our French friends that he is in a Bible study with his wife this year. So we are so excited. <laughs> so that's just a little story of one of the many um, beautiful things that God is doing. And I know he's doing them in your midst, too, and all over the world. But we were just excited to be a part of that in that time and place. So one of the things Tim didn't mention is that we're actually in transition right now. Uh, we were the furs in France. We're actually getting ready to transition to be the furs in Scotland. That doesn't have the same ring, so you'll see on our sign-up sheet back there, feel free to sign up for our newsletter, we're the furs and kilts now. So uh, we actually began feeling a, a calling several years ago. Um, God was beginning to show us that what he called us to do in France was coming to an end. We were there to see a successful planting of a church, facilitating French church planters to reach their own people. We saw the church was in the hands of French leadership. It was healthy. It was growing. And it was actually on its way to multiplication. Uh, they're in the process of planting another church and right on the outskirts of Paris. So we really felt like God was beginning to release us to say, you know, you've worked yourself out of a job and what we, I've called you here to do for this season. But he began laying on our hearts a desire to work with European Christian leaders. We saw with our French friends that were our European Christian leaders that what we brought, the thing they said to us that was the biggest thing that we brought as missionaries was a sense of encouragement and refreshment and spiritual care to say that you can do it in this hard environment. And we began to feel that God was laying on our hearts a desire to work with other European Christian leaders. And God planted this crazy dream in us to plant a missional center that would be able to provide care, spiritual formation, soul care, theological training, and leadership development for other European Christian leaders. So we began to get excited about that. And then within our own mission, we saw that there were others that were getting excited about that too. We served with two missions, uh, the EPC World Outreach and United World Mission. So some of our United World Mission colleagues in South Africa were planting a very similar kind of center. In fact, it seemed to be the exact same kind of thing that God was putting on our hearts. So to make a long story short, we began to talk with these guys in Cape Town and said, what would it look like for us to join you? Their center is called East Mountain, and it does exactly that. It is working in the South African context to see leaders form, young leaders trained, and then released to see the gospel move throughout South Africa and other parts of Africa as well. So we said, can we join you? Can we be a East Mountain center in Europe? And they said, we would love it. Let's be something together. So we began thinking, we began praying, and we began asking the question, well, where? Where do we do it? You know, there were a lot of different um, questions we asked. You know, where's this, the right spiritual place? Where do, can we find the right partners? And after about a year and a half of searching, it came down to Edinburgh, Scotland. God opened up the doors there. Um, the biggest reason was because we found partners, Scottish and English leaders, who said, we want you to join what we're doing. We want you to bring that kind of missional center here because we have a heart for that too. We want to see churches renewed. We want to see churches planted. We want to see leaders trained. And we also want to see it not only here in Scotland and in England and in the Celtic lands, but we want to see it go beyond that into Europe, and that's our heart. We found leaders there who were saying, we are feeling God renewing our call as Celtic nations. Those were their words. 
to be missional again to the rest of Europe. So we said, this is the place we need to go. So why Scotland? It's because God has opened the doors. So we are planning to move as a family next May, end of May, beginning of June, to begin the process of planting the center. We're not going alone. We're actually going with a part of this East Mountain movement. Um, I'm excited because God is actually opening up doors for East Mountain centers in Bangkok and in Kenya and in Chicago and in Mexico City. So within the last year, this seems to be something bubbling up within our missional world. So we're excited to go and to plant this center um, and to have your support too. So thank you for what you've done for us as the first in France. And we just pray that you would continue with us and to pray for us as we become the furs and kilts. So thank you. Thank you so much. So I get the, the added privilege, the added bonus of being able to share with you from God's word as well. So thank you for letting us share about what God is calling us to do in this season. And now I get to share with you from one of my actually favorite passages of scripture. When Tim said, you know, you have the choice, you can share with whatever you want. Um, Or, you know, we're in this series in Mark. So if you'd like to share um, in Mark, you can do that as well. And he showed me the passage from Mark 9, 14 through 29. And I said, oh, I love this passage. I'm going to go with that one. So again, we're in the book of Mark. And you guys have been in a series about uh, the book of Mark. And I love the title there, The King and His Kingdom. Because the book of Mark is this book about Jesus coming as king in authority and power. And he moves through the book of Mark in just an amazing way. Uh, He basically powers through this gospel. And you see him as the king coming to reign. But for this passage, I want to set the stage for you a little bit. And I'm sure Tim did this last week. Um, You know what happens right before this passage in Mark 9. It's the transfiguration. One of probably the big highlights of uh, Jesus' life on earth. It's a, it's a big moment. And in the transfiguration, we know that Jesus takes his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain. He leaves the other disciples down uh, somewhere in the city. And he takes these three disciples. And on this mountain of transfiguration, something amazing happens. Jesus is there and he is glorified. And he's talking with Elijah and he's talking with Moses. And his face is shining. His clothes become whiter than uh, anyone could ever bleach them. And in the midst of this, the disciples are enveloped by a cloud. And the voice of God the Father speaks and says, this is my son. Listen to him. I mean, this is a big moment. This is a huge moment. What would that have been like? So that's the setting of where we begin in this passage in Mark 9. So the transfiguration has happened. They come down the mountain and into the midst of a situation. They find their fellow disciples in the midst of a crowd, arguing with the teachers of the law. I mean, talk about a buzzkill. You see your brothers, they're arguing back and forth, and you've just had this amazing experience. But Mark says in verse 15, That as soon as Jesus enters into the situation, as soon as he engages the crowd, they see him, and it changes everything. It says that the people were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. And the scripture doesn't doesn't say this, but I just wonder, did they see something in Jesus' face? The, The remainder of the glory of the Father on him. Kind of like Moses when he received the Ten Commandments on the mountain. And he came down and his face was shining so brightly that the people were frightened. And they had to cover his face with a veil. 
So Jesus comes down with this je ne sais quoi, this something that's burning on in, in his visage. And the people are attracted to him. And they run to him. And Jesus interjects himself into the situation and asks his disciples, what are, what are you arguing with them about? And this is the point where we meet a desperate man. This is a man who started the whole commotion. This is a father who has watched his son over the years be ravaged by a strange illness. But it was more than just physical. It was something that was evil. And he rightly diagnoses it for Jesus and says that it was an evil spirit that has robbed his son of speech, that's tried to kill him, that sent him into seizures that caused him to foam at the mouth and to fall onto the ground. Now, we don't know, the scripture doesn't tell us what this man has done in the past to try to bring healing to his son. If he went to doctors or other teachers of the law, other religious figures to see him get healed. But we know that on this particular day, he's looking for Jesus. He's probably heard about Jesus, the powerful things that Jesus has done. And he's brought his son to Jesus, and Jesus isn't there. He's on the mountain. So he brings him to Jesus' disciples, you know, the next best thing. And he's asked for them to drive out the spirit, but they can't do it. So he explains to Jesus, I brought my son to your disciples, but they could not drive this spirit out. Imagine this man's disappointment. And Jesus' reaction to what this man says about his disciples being unable to drive out the Spirit in verse 19 is very telling. In fact, it lets you know exactly what's at stake here. Jesus says, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? I think the first time I read that, I thought, Wow, that's harsh. He's harshing on. Who is he harshing on here? It may seem harsh, but I really think that Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. If you do look back at the book of Mark, you do see Jesus moving in power and authority, not only power and authority over the spiritual realm, but the physical realm as well. He's healing, he's rebuking spirits, but he's not only doing that, he's calling out the faith of the people with whom he interacts. Every single time, he's calling out faith. So as you look back in the book of Mark, in chapter 4, we see that Jesus is with his disciples, and the storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee, and he's there sleeping in the boat. The disciples are terrified, and they cry and say, Lord, don't you care about us? And he wakes up, and he says, do you have so little faith? And then he calms the storm. In chapter 5, we see that a sick woman who has been cursed with an issue of bleeding for years and years and years makes her way, she pushes her way through the crowd just so that she can touch Jesus' robe. And as soon as she does it, she's healed. And Jesus turns to her and he says these words, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And in that same chapter, that same narrative, Jesus was actually on his way to go to heal a sick girl. And right after the woman touches him, Servants come up and say, don't worry about it, teacher. The girl is dead. Don't even bother. And Jesus replies and he says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Then he goes and raises the girl from the dead. Are you seeing a pattern here? The rebuke he gives in this chapter is for unbelief. Maybe it was for the unbelief of the disciples who weren't able to drive the spirit out. And later Jesus said, 
this kind comes out only through prayer, and it's a prayer of faith. Or maybe he's rebuking the teachers of the law who didn't believe in him at all. Maybe it was a combination of both. Regardless, the core issue that Jesus is concerned with here is belief and unbelief. And now Jesus finds himself standing in front of a man who's wavering on the edges of belief with one foot firmly planted in unbelief. Jesus asks for the boy to come. And it's interesting because Mark says the, the reaction of the boy is immediate. It's actually not the reaction of the boy. It's the reaction of the spirit, the evil spirit in the boy. The boy is immediately thrown down and he has a seizure and he's foaming at the mouth. He's convulsing. If the people were filled with wonder at Jesus' approach, this evil spirit was filled with fear and dread. In verse 20, Mark says, it throws the boy to the ground because the evil spirit believes and is terrified because it knows exactly who Jesus is and exactly the kind of power that he has. So this desperate father then explains to Jesus, because Jesus says, how long has he been like this? The desperate father says, he's been like this since childhood. And how he's almost lost him on numerous occasions as his spirit throws him into the water or into the fire trying to kill him. And then he does something very interesting. The father hedges his bets against any further disappointments. And he says to Jesus in verse 22, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. The word if here is like a shield. It's shielding the father against further disappointment. It's also the sign that his desperation isn't yet complete. He hasn't hit rock bottom. It's a marker that points to the portion of doubt that's still left in his heart. If you can do something. And Jesus, and I love this, Jesus doesn't let him get away with it. He lovingly enters into the if you can. He confronts the fear of disappointment. He confronts the fear that this father has to see his son suffer any further. And even into the lack of faith of his disciples by saying something extraordinary in verse 23. He says, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. Now, I, I want to take a step away from the narrative just for a second. Something that I found really interesting as I was studying this. Isn't it interesting that the, the focus of this story is not really on the boy? I mean, it is about the boy because it's the boy who's being healed. And Jesus is showing his power and his authority over both the spiritual world and the physical world. But really, when you look at this, the main two players here are Jesus and who? The Father. It's the Father and the Father's heart and how Jesus is dealing with the Father. And the choice that the Father has to make in his heart, belief or unbelief. And what Jesus does is he touches that desperate place in the Father's heart. He challenges the doubt and the weight of fear and says, everything is possible for the one who believes. Everything? 
I mean, the father could have argued. We could probably argue too. Everything? Well, not in my experience. The father could look back at his son being thrown into into the fire and maybe his wrestling with belief. He could have done that. He could have gone back to the disciples' failure just that morning. He could have gone back to any number of times when this evil spirit had tried to kill his son. He has every logical reason to rest squarely in his unbelief. But he doesn't do that. Verse 24 says, Immediately, immediately the father makes a choice. And he cries out from a place of pure honesty in a seeming contradiction that we probably all understand on a gut level. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love this. It's one of the most human and one of the most powerful confessions that I find in the gospel. I relate to that. Do you? I believe. Help my unbelief. Because in essence, this man, this father, has finally touched on his deepest desire. A desire to believe. And a desire to receive help in his helplessness. He's admitting that there's a struggle in him, that he has a divided heart that threatens to keep him back, to hold him back. But finally, finally, he's upfront about it. He's honest. There's no polite, if you can, Jesus. In this moment, there's no accusation. There's no rational hemming and hawing. Yeah, but this happened, this happened. There's nothing but a gut-wrenching cry. Jesus, help me. And it's in this moment of desperate, raw honesty that Jesus acts. He delivers the son from his spiritual, the spiritual possession and affliction, the physical harm that accompanied it, and at the exact same moment, he delivers the father of his unbelief. That's what I call a two-for-one special. Now, I think there are two key phrases here in this passage that we should all take away. I mean, one of them is spoken by Jesus, and one of them is spoken by the Father. If you take nothing else from this sermon, take these two with you as you go. Because it's here in this first phrase that Jesus sets out the gold standard of faith, if you will. He says, everything is possible for the one who believes. And Jesus is saying that's reality. That's just the way the world works. The spiritual world, the physical world, this is the reality. Everything is possible for the one who believes. So what do we do with that? Do we believe it? If not, we're like the father at the beginning of the story. I mean, perhaps we know where to bring our issues. I mean, you're here, I'm here. Uh, We're attracted to Jesus by something we know of him or someone who knows him. We, We like him, perhaps we may even call him Lord. We know where to go with our issues and our problems. But at some point somewhere, do we hedge our bets by saying, if you can, maybe? I mean, it's our shield. We like Jesus, we're intrigued by him. We may even want something from him. We may even call him Savior and Lord. But oftentimes, we're not really at a place of desperation. We're not ready to go to a place of deep, raw, naked honesty. Basically, lay it out before Jesus, throw our full weight of our belief onto him. But that's what he asks for. That's what he demands 
and has always demanded of everyone. Jesus doesn't rebuke the man for admitting that he had unbelief in his heart. His cry for help to overcome that unbelief is exactly what was needed in that moment. And it's this cry, this second phrase that's so important that we take with us. I do believe. Help me. Help me overcome my unbelief. Some versions have it. Are we desperate enough to cry out like that? I would contend that our world is growing more desperate by the day. Um, Do you feel it? One of the interesting side effects of living out of my home culture for the better part of a decade is that when I come back into it, I see things with different, different eyes. I've noticed it, and it's troubling because I feel very out of phase in some ways with what's happened in American culture. And I'm seeing radical shifts that I never expected. But I feel the desperation. I mean, you look at the political winds that are blowing, and people feel it. You look at what's going on with our economy, people feel it. There's a sense that I get in the movies that are being produced now and the TV shows that I see. There's this feeling that something is really, really wrong. I live in Europe, uh, a Europe that has been completely changed in the last year and a half by terrorism, which has become the new normal. And French people are just beginning to accept that they could be involved in a terrorist attack at any moment. You look at the waves and waves of migration that Europeans don't know what to do with. And there's a sense that hope has left the building. And there's not a bright future for the children that are coming into the world. I mean, I look at Syria and Aleppo, uh, tension with Russia, Iran, China, ISIS, homegrown terrorism, $20 trillion of debt, a crazy political election season. And I think, wow, desperate times. And desperate times call for desperate measures. And this passage lays out for us the most desperate measure of them all. Because the most powerful thing that we can do is to confront the wavering if-you-cans that we hold up like a shield that exist in us in the ways that we for years have been trying to make it work on our own. And to turn to the one, the only one who can truly help us. Not with the pseudo-pious, well, everything will work out okay, me and Jesus. I'll call him if I need him but with the same gut-honest cry that this boy's father came with. Because the world is ugly. Life is tough. And we're all scathed and scarred by it. I always said if I were ever going to be in like a Christian heavy metal band, I would call it scathed, because it sounds good. Because none of us are unscathed. Scathed just sounds like a really good heavy metal band name. We're scathed. None of us are unscathed. And when we come to Jesus with that honesty... We're saying that I'm a mess. I don't have it all together. And there are places in me and my heart where I want to believe, help my unbelief. We come to him with honesty and say, help. Where are your if-you-cans this morning? What is it that holds you back and keeps one foot right there in unbelief? What keeps you from coming? What keeps me from coming to Jesus with who we really are? What image are you trying to keep up? And what would it take for us to finally give over those things, to throw down caution, throw it to the wind, and come with a ragged and honest heart? 
I want to close today with these two key phrases that you take with that you take with them. I'm going to take them with me too. Jesus says, "Everything is possible for him who believes." Well, we respond, "I do believe." Help me with my unbelief. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the Messiah of power and of grace and of healing and that you offer that to us this morning. I thank you for what you have done and what you are doing. Lord, I just pray that you would work in our hearts those places that we've kept back from you with a shield if you can that you would allow us to cry from the depths of a ragged heart and say, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And that just like you did in this passage in Mark, you would enter into those difficult moments in each one of us and show your power and your glory. And that we would be witnesses for you and you, the King, and your kingdom. And I thank you for your love, your sacrifice, and your grace to us. In Jesus' name I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Amen.